Welcome to News of the Times. This podcast is aimed for those with a passion for history and the human story. Through actual news articles of our past, I review the social media stories of their day, touching upon the lives, trends and world of the everyday person. I am Robin Coles and this is News of the Times. News of the Times. The time, 1829 to 1831. The headlines. The hanging of grave robber and murderer William Burke in Edinburgh. His associate, William Hare, who testified against him, is released. The Oxford University Boat Club wins the first inter-university boat race. Road at Henley-upon-Thames. Robert Peel's Metropolitan Police Act establishes the Metropolitan Police Service. The first bus service in London begins operation. The first police officers of the Metropolitan Police Service, known by the nicknames Bobbies or Peelers, Go on patrol in London. The last of the bounty mutineers dies at Pitcairn Island. King George IV dies and is succeeded by his younger brother, William. The sum voted by Parliament for the civil list is restricted to the expenses of the royal household. Englishman Edward Budding is granted a patent for the invention of the lawnmower. Liverpool and Manchester Railway opens as the world's first intercity passenger railway operated solely by steam locomotives. The new London Bridge is officially opened. Charles Darwin embarks on his historic voyage aboard HMS Beagle from Plymouth. Andrew Jackson is sworn in as the seventh President of the United States. American William Burt obtains the first patent for a type of typewriter. He calls it the typographer. Mrs. Helen Dance, wife of the captain of the ship Sulphur, cuts down a tree to mark the founding day of the town of Perth in Western Australia. Our headline story from The Sun in London, January 1829. Murder by arsenic. John Jardine was placed at the bar under a charge of feloniously and maliciously administering to Mary Jardine, his wife, a deadly poison called arsenic, with intent to kill and murder her at Newington. Mr. Law, on, on the part of the prosecution, stated the case. The present 
was an indictment founded on a statute passed in the reign of his present majesty, that if any person unlawfully and maliciously shall administer or attempt to administer to any person or shall cause to be taken by any person any poison or other destructive thing with intent to murder such person, every such offender and every person counselling, aiding and abetting such offender shall be guilty of felony and being convicted thereof shall suffer death as a felon. The prisoner at the bar was formerly a bombardier and for his services had received a pension. The wife, who was the subject of the present indictment and who would be called as a witness, had been married before she became connected with the prisoner. The children, who were the fruits of the former marriage, were, it was fair to the prisoner to say, always treated with the most fatherly kindness. They had lived together for sixteen years. During the first thirteen years of that period, he had, he understood, conducted himself as an excellent husband. Towards the commencement of the last three years, he unfortunately became reacquainted with some women who completely estranged him from his wife. She, the wife, became the object of his abhorrence and was treated in the worst manner. At length, he refused to support her, and she was taken into the Woolwich workhouse as part of the pension allowed him by government was stopped to defray the expense to which the parish was put for the support of his wife. This, the prisoner not liking, he made an application to the committee of the workhouse to allow him to take her out. This was permitted, and the stoppage of the pension ceased. She had scarcely got home when he resumed his ill treatment. He was to have allowed her two shillings and sixpence per week for her support, but this was soon reduced to four pence a day, and at last two pence a day. The unfortunate woman, being thus brought in danger of starvation, told her husband that unless he increased her allowance, she must have recourse to a magistrate. He told her she might go when she liked. She replied that she would go. The prisoner then rejoined the following remarkable words. Don't speak too fast, or perhaps you may not be able to go. This was on the 5th of October. On the morning of the 6th, about nine o'clock, she had prepared her breakfast as usual, and for some purpose left the room. When she returned, she found the prisoner standing with the lid of the kettle in his hand shutting it down. This did not excite any suspicion in her mind as he was in the habit of taking water from the kettle for shaving. Without any hesitation, she poured the quantity of water she wanted from the kettle into the teapot and drank about a cup and a half of the tea thus made. In a few minutes, she felt a very great heat in her stomach, accompanied with severe shooting pain. Her stomach became distended, and she vomited some of its contents. 
During this time, the prisoner was walking up and down the room, laughing at her. She at length became so ill that a medical man was sent for. The prisoner had, previous to this, put on his hat with great unconcern and left the house. Mr. Boast, the surgeon, heard the woman describe her symptoms, and thence he concluded that she must take an arsenic. He made use of the stomach pump, and the contents drawn out by that means showed his opinion well founded. In the stomach pump and on the sides of the kettle, whence the water in the teapot had been taken, nearly eight drams of white arsenic were found. By the remedies then applied, any permanent injury to the woman was prevented. The parish authorities interfered, and after an examination before a magistrate, it was determined to apprehend the prisoner. Accordingly, a constable was sent to the house of the prisoner, and he was taken into custody from his bed. He was afterwards fully committed for trial. The jury, after retiring for about half an hour, returned a verdict of guilty. The prisoner, having been called up for the judgment, Mr. Baron Vaughan, in a very feeling manner, pronounced the awful judgment of the law. From the Royal Cornwall Gazette, February 1829, Burke and Hare. The real number of murders committed by this infamous gang is 16. Four in Burke's house when it was occupied by Brogan, who, though he might not have known what was taken place, was not, we believe, present as an accessory. Four after Brogan left the house. Six in Hare's house and two in his stable adjoining. The first body sold was that of a pensioner who died in Hare's house, and for whom a mock funeral was got up, the coffin being filled with tanner's bark. All seventeen of the corpses are said to have been disposed of to the same person at prices varying from eight pounds to ten pounds. The greater portion of the unfortunate individuals who were murdered were persons far advanced in life. Workmen were employed yesterday afternoon in fitting up strong wooden barriers to keep off the crowd which was expected to be very large. The Yorkshire Gazette, September 1831, The Solitary Mariner A bottle has been picked up on the coast of Jutland containing a letter in Danish to the following effects. Lost. The whole of the crew, carried off by the cholera except myself, Nicholas Perdison, second midshipman of the ship Henrietta Dorothea of Borgen in Norway, 7th of August, 1831. Advertisement, the Yorkshire Gazette, September 1831, Destruction of the world. Mr. Lowe, as a lecturer on astronomy at Liverpool, promised to present a view of the comet of the 16th century, predicting to appear in 1833 and destroy our Earth, which prediction is at present convulsing the inhabitants of the content with alarm and many of the people of England with fear. 
From the Morning Post, December 1830, the Davis and Watts execution. Note to our listeners, this was the last execution for piracy in Britain. Yesterday morning, being fixed for the two pirates, George James Davis, alias George Huntley, and William Watts, alias Charles Williams, to expiate with their lives the crimes they had committed. A great number of persons assembled in the neighbourhood of Execution Dock to witness the sentence carried into effect. Notwithstanding great efforts had been made to procure a remission of the sentence, the law was left to take its place. When they were made acquainted with the result of the report to His Majesty in Council, they expressed themselves to be perfectly resigned to their fate and said their sentence was just, and they have ever since conducted themselves with the greatest propriety and paid every attention to the religious consultation afforded them by the Reverend Chaplain of the prison, Dr. Cotton. The following are a few of the facts connected with the crime for which the unfortunate men had paid so dearly. As our readers are aware, they had been transported to Botany Bay, and in consequence of refractory conduct, they were, with sixteen others, ordered to be conveyed to another port in Australia, called Macquarie Harbour. But on their way hither the convicts mutinied, and succeeded in making themselves masters of the Cyprus, the vessel employed to convey them thither, and they set all the soldiers and the regular ship's company on shore of an uninhabited island. They made sail for Japan, but their vessel was so roughly treated by the Japanese authorities that they were compelled to abandon her and were for several days left to the mercy of the winds and waves in an open boat. The four prisoners who were capitally convicted and two of whom have been respited were the only ones who arrived at China, where they were taken by the British authorities and sent home to England for trial. At half-past eight, the culprits left Newgate and arrived at execution dock at half-past nine. Huntley jumped out of the cart with the greatest firmness and walked very fast to the scaffold, which he mounted without any assistance. He was immediately followed by Williams, and when the ropes were put around their necks, the latter addressed the multitude and said he thought that they had been very much worse treated than they had treated the persons they had set ashore on an uninhabited island, for they had given them plenty of provisions. They then shook hands together, and at a signal given by Dr. Cotton, the drop fell. They struggled a long time before the vital spark was extinct. From the Scotsman, March 1829, the colonization of Barbary. We hear has a grand project in contemplation between the governments of France and that of England to do away with the small power on the Barbary coast as at the length the different powers paying them tribute becomes a complete nuisance. The plan is to colonize Barbary with French and English subjects for which they are to obtain the sanction of the Grand Sultan, 
in a special negotiation, and a person of therefore great renown is to be employed in the business at the court of Constantinople. From the London Evening Standard, August 1829, a boy, almost 16 years of age, was flogged 100 yards yesterday morning at 9 o'clock for stealing a gown from the back premises of Mr. Gribble, number 2, Portland Place, Walworth Common, London. From the Staffordshire Advertiser, August 1831. Trial and the execution of a boy for murder. Kent Assizes. The judge took his seat on Friday morning at half-past eight to try John Amy Bell, aged 14, for the murder of Richard F. Taylor, aged 13, in a wood in the parish of Chatham. Few cases, perhaps, have ever excited in a court of justice more intense interest than the trial of this wretched boy. If we may judge from the excessively crowded state of the court by all classes, of the fair sex there was a vast assemblage, all well-dressed and some fashionably. For hours before the opening of the doors of the court every passage was thronged with persons pressing for admission. And several times under the progress of the trial the judge had occasion to reprove the inattention of the under-sheriff. Several witnesses proved seeing the boys together on the day in question and identified the b body. G. Farrell, clerk to the magistrate at Rochester, read the statement made by the prisoner, which he, witness, reduced to writing. There was neither threat nor promise held out to him. The witness then read the paper as follows. John Bell, the prisoner, said to his brother James, on seeing the deceased, There goes young Taylor, James, let us kill him, and take his money, and let us lay him under these stones that we can't count over. He then addressed the magistrate and said, It was I, sir, that did the murder, and while I was doing it, my brother Jem watched at my back. He did it, he said, at one cut, that the deceased was not long dying. The little boy lost his way in the woods and laid down to cry, and while the boy was lying down, he cut his throat. He took the money from the boy's glove and gave part to his brother. His brother gave him his knife to cut the boy's throat. The boy squeaked when his throat was cut as a rabbit squeaked. He only squeaked once. He gave him two cuts. He took the boy into the woods to murder him. He had on the frock his brother Jem then wore, and the blood went on it, and was on it still. Charles Patterson examined, I am a constable, and had the prisoner in my custody, and was taking him from Rochester to Maidstone Jail, and in passing a pond, the prisoner observed that this is the pond where I wash my hands and the knife after I did the crime, and he remarked on seeing a path that led to the road. That is the road that leads to the road to the spot where I killed the poor boy. Don't you think, sir, he's better off than I am? The prisoner also showed me a place where he came out of the wood with the bloody knife in his hand. He said, and also a place where he 
and the deceased went into the wood that before they had been together in a turnip field, and pulled a turnip which the deceased pared with his knife, and then he took the deceased into the wood under the pretense of showing him a short way home. But after they had got some distance, he told the deceased he had lost his way, and the deceased, on hearing that, sat down and began to cry. And on that he jumped on the deceased, and in an instant cut his throat. That he took the money then partly from the deceased's hand, and partly from the purse. He had great difficulty in getting the money from the hand. It was closed so fast, and that after getting the money he rushed out of the wood, greatly alarmed. On taking him to jail, the prisoner said he need not to be ironed. He knew he should be hung, and would not attempt to escape. Mr. Justice Gazalee, addressing the jury at great length, going through the whole of the evidence, and commenting on it as he went on, the case, he said, was one of a nature that the whole of his professional experience had not furnished him with another instance of and it was one which would require the serious attention and consideration of the jury. The jury, after a few minutes' consultation in the box, returned a verdict of guilty, but recommended the prisoner to mercy on account of his extreme youth, and the profligate and unnatural manner in which he had been brought up. While the foreman of the jury was delivering the verdict, he could not observe that the boy flinched in the least, though he stood more forward, leaning with both hands on the bar before him. The judge proceeded to pass judgment of death on the prisoner, which his lordship did in an address that occupied more than half an hour. The prisoner was ordered for execution on Monday, and never moved even at this moment until the dissection of his body was mentioned, and then he dropped a solitary tear. Advertisement from the Scotsman, March 1829, recently published, Wilderspin's System of Infant Education, or Practical Remarks on the Importance of Educating the Infant Poor from the Age of 18 Months to 7 Years, containing hints for developing the moral and intellectual powers of children of all classes, sold by Simpkin and Marshall, Stationers Court, Ludgate Street, London. From the Scotsman, August 1831, Tale of Horror. The eldest daughter of a wagon master died suddenly of apoplexy on the fourth day she was interred. Three or four hours after the ceremony, a gentleman who was hooting near the village perceived that his favourite spaniel had suddenly left him and was nowhere to be found. The following morning, to the surprise of everyone who heard it, the dog was round beside the new grave, scratching away the mould with great excitement and howling piteously. The circumstances excited immediate and painful interest. The churchyard was filled with the population. Horrible suspicion circulated in a whisper, but none dare to act without advice and authority from the wagon-master. The latter, insensible to the entreaties of the people, ridiculed their apprehensions, and declared that he would permit nothing to be done 
but in the presence of the physician of the department. Before the latter had arrived, two days had elapsed. The dog still continued sentinel and howling at the grave, upbraiding as he might well those who looked idly on. The coffin was disinterred and opened in the presence of the physician. They found the ill-fated young woman turned with her face downwards, her grave clothes soaked with blood, and her person covered with bruises and lacerations. The wagon-master was apprehended and is now in the fortress, but the circumstances have produced a dreadful sensation in the community. From the London Evening Standard, August 1829, the ferocity of rats. A remarkable instance of the ferocity of rats occurred lately at Wigington. A Mr. Hoare of Tringrange Farm was returning home about ten o'clock at night, and he saw upwards of one hundred rats approaching him on the common. He threw stones among them when they instantly surrounded him, and several ran up his body as high as his shoulders. With much difficulty, Mr. Hoare succeeded in beating them off. Both his hands were severely bitten and covered with blood and inflamed. You have been listening to the News of the Times, 1829 to 1831. And I am Robin Coles. Thank you for listening to News of the Times. New episodes incorporating a new span of time from history will be updated weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and subscribe. You can also check out our sister channel, Simply Stories, found on all your favourite podcast apps.